You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him, and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by Yahweh, that he might fulfill his word, which Yahweh spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel, who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, 
king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah, and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people. Thus says Yahweh, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of Yahweh, and went home again, according to the word of Yahweh. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and lived there. And he went out from there, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places, and appointed priests from among all the people, who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and went up to the altar to make offerings. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 786 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, December 28th, 2023, and that was a reading of 1 Kings chapter 12, covering Rehoboam's folly and the kingdom divided. Jeroboam makes golden calves. We'll talk about that, but first, of course, we'll have to talk about Rehoboam taking bad advice. He got bad advice from his friends, which is to say, like his father being led away into trouble by those around him, those who were influencing him, his wives specifically. Rehoboam is going to get into trouble by those around him, namely his friends, those he grew up with. He shouldn't have taken the advice of his friends. And this is to say, it's not a uniquely male-female problem. Like, if men just wouldn't listen to the influence of women, everything would be great. No, actually, sometimes the trouble comes because men are listening to other men too much, or they're listening to the wrong men. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Which men are you listening to? Which men are you getting advice from? Are you getting advice from perhaps the wrong generation or the wrong selection within a generation. Rehoboam certainly did. The advice from the old men who had served before Solomon, Rehoboam's father, that was good advice. And of course, Rehoboam was not going to take that advice. And he didn't take that advice. He answered the people of Israel the way that his companions from his youth advised him to. And that was his undoing. Oh, you think my dad was tough on you guys? I'm going to be even tougher still. 
You want some leniency? You want me to ease up a little bit? <laughs> we'll just see about that. And what's the response from the people? Forget you. Essentially, every man to his tent. You can do your own thing, Rehoboam. You want to be harsh with the household of David? We have no portion in the household of David. We have no portion in David. Mind your own business. Leave us alone. How about that? And this is from God, actually. That's a curious thing because on the one hand, those who have authority are raised up by God. But then on the other hand, just like he raises them up, he can bring them low and he does bring them low. And in this case, it was foretold well in advance that the kingdom would be taken away from Solomon's son because Solomon had built these places to worship the false gods, the gods of some of his foreign wives. In fact, eventually all of his foreign wives. Hey, if we're going to have places dedicated to the worship of one or two or four, why not all? And so he did. And God was angry. And God gave the warning. He gave the warning on the front end, don't do this thing. If you don't do this thing, this idolatry thing, if you serve me faithfully, if you walk in my statutes, if you observe my commandments and you obey them, if you worship only me, you will get length of days and your throne will be established forever. But if you worship other gods, if you forsake me and this covenant, then the kingdom will be taken away from you. The temple will be swept away. You will not be king. And what does Solomon do? Wise as he is, wiser than any man before him, any man who will come after him, wiser than any contemporary man, Solomon does exactly what God says not to do, or else there will be very bad consequences. And here are the bad consequences. We forget this, and this is not unique to us. We find in Scripture that the people God is speaking to directly forget this, that the timing of God's judgments when there is sin, that is his choosing. He chooses the time, and there is no statute of limitations. Humanly speaking, when we're administering justice, it makes sense that we have a statute of limitations. But when God is punishing sin, when he is judging a sinful person or a sinful people, there's no statute of limitations because he's not constrained by the same things that we are humanly. We may find that the evidence is not there anymore if we wait too long. We may find that memories have gotten a little fuzzy. That's why we have a statute of limitations, so that you don't have somebody way after the material fact has come and gone making up a accusation and then saying, oh, this happened way back when. And we actually see violations of this principle of a statute of limitations eroding due process and introducing quite a lot of potential for corruption in our day. Say, for instance, when partisan politics get involved in the confirmation of somebody who has been nominated to become a Supreme Court justice, for instance, if they are appointed or they are nominated by a Republican, the Democrats can be relied on to trot somebody out who claims that they were wronged by this person decades ago. If you go looking for evidence to substantiate their claims, good luck. You probably are not going to find any evidence other than the testimony. And even that doesn't have to stick. That doesn't have to hold up in court. 
It just has to do the dirty work for a short time of impugning the character of this person. And this is why false accusations should bring the same punishment that would be brought on the person who's been falsely accused if they were, in fact, guilty. To falsely accuse somebody of something so that they will be punished if they are exonerated, if they are absolved, if they are found to be innocent, the person who leveled the false accusation should get the punishment that would fit the crime that they accused the other person of having committed. That's just. But in the case of God and in the case of due process and in the case of a statute of limitations, his memory does not grow dim with time. He is not less sure on the details, like he forgets. Unless he chooses to not hold a sin against us, he knows exactly what it is that we did or exactly what was done to us, whether we are guilty or whether we are innocent. And the punishment, if we are guilty, does not have to come in a certain time frame. It can come years, decades down the road. It can come generations down the road. In this case, it's a generation removed from Solomon. But Solomon is told because that's part of the discipline. That's part of the correction and the punishment is that Solomon is going to know that the kingdom is being taken away from his descendant. Just like the throne would have been established forever because of the obedience and the faithfulness and the love David had towards God, Solomon's idolatry is going to see that the kingdom is divided. Verse 16 of 1 Kings chapter 12, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. But then verse 21 says, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, because apparently Benjamin was on board, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says Yahweh, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. And what's remarkable about this is it goes so contrary, the conventional wisdom with a very shallow political theology that says all you need to know about how a person of God, a man of God, a woman of God should relate to civil authorities is do whatever they tell you. What's curious about this is that the division here between Israel and Judah is, according to God, from him. He's the one who is making this division. So don't fight about it. You don't need to have a war here among yourselves. In fact, don't. Go home. I did this. And they listen, because otherwise, what are wars predicated on? Wars have to have some kind of a moral basis. Either A, you guys wronged us, and now we're going to punish you for it. You guys threaten us. You are intending to do wrong to us, and so we're going to stop you preventatively. Or there is some good that we have a right to collect. Not to say that the moral explanations or the attempts at Justifying war are always actually moral, but it is to say there's some attempt made. There is some vision of the good life that is being advanced or it's said will be protected by the making of war. God intervening here 
speaking through Shemaiah, the man of God, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. That removes the moral justification for the war, which means there will be no war. And that's interesting. What's also interesting, though, is Rehoboam, right after the people of Israel say, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. Yeah, you want to be king? Be king over your own house. How about that? How do you like that? The response from Rehoboam after this is to send Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, like Adoram was supposed to fix it. Adoram was going to whip these people into shape, which is to say, too, that Rehoboam saw all Israel here as just so much help, so much forced labor. He was treating them all like slaves, like he was so far above them. One, if they asked for a lighter load, he was going to make it heavier. But then two, if they were going to say, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, he was going to say, oh, yes, you do. He sends Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, because Adoram's going to know how to deal with unruly, disobedient people. Like Rehoboam answered, my father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. I'm going to be even more harsh. Adoram is going to be the scorpion, apparently. (laughs) What's the response? All Israel stones him to death with stones. So much for that. Be careful going the wrong direction with this and thinking this is a blank check. But understand when God says this is from God, that there's a division now between Israel and Judah. And 10 tribes have now been taken away from Rehoboam, son of Solomon. When God says that this is his doing, the escalation of hostility or resentment of harshness from Rehoboam's side is met by an escalation on the part of Israel. Oh, Adoram is going to whip us with scorpions? Or Adoram is the scorpion you intend to whip us with? He's the one who's going to be harsh with us to get us back in line? To make us obey you now? We'll just see about that. We'll just kill him. It says right after that, King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So this did not go the way that he thought it was going to go. He's going to get out of there because otherwise they might stone him with stones as well. Verse 19 says, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Now, that's a curious thing because in the very next paragraph, you have Rehoboam assembling all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and yet only the tribe of Judah follows the house of David. And so it's confusing. And maybe that's the point. It's going back and forth. The tribe of Benjamin initially is also going to recognize Jeroboam as king, and then at the very next, when there's a call sent out mustering troops, they say, okay, well, maybe we'll actually side with Rehoboam. So they're going back and forth, vacillating. You'll see people like this when there's a conflict regarding who's going to call the shots, who's in authority, who has jurisdiction. You'll see this. You'll see people who go back and forth. In this case, the whole tribe of Benjamin goes back and forth. 
That's how I read it. But then Jeroboam. Jeroboam has been given the kingdom, all Israel except for Judah, by God. And his response is reminiscent of the people of Israel when they first came out of Egypt. And Moses was up on Mount Sinai speaking with God, getting the Ten Commandments. He doesn't just make one golden calf, though. He makes two golden calves. Yeah, last time this didn't work. Maybe we just didn't have enough golden calves, you know? Well, that could be. That could be. Maybe we need two this time. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's have two golden calves. And so they did. Instead of one golden calf, they have two golden calves. And then Jeroboam is just making it up as he goes. And why not? Solomon had built the temple to the name of Yahweh. And then he had also established these places of worship for these other gods, the gods of his wives who were foreign. But it wasn't just Solomon who got into trouble there. This was a tendency for the people of Israel to go and worship the gods of the surrounding nations. This is political. And we see this sort of a thing today as well. Oh, you guys worship Jesus? You worship the God of the Bible? You believe the Bible? Well, we disagree politically. We're at odds with each other over the left-right divide, over Republican versus Democrat type issues. And so if you're a Christian and you're a Republican and you're a conservative, well, then I just don't even want to be a Christian because I hate what you stand for. I hate your politics. Some variation on that appears to be the concern for Jeroboam. Jeroboam does not want Israel going back to the house of David. He says in his heart, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And isn't that interesting that that's the sort of a thing that can happen? That's the sort of a thing that can motivate a person in authority in the civil sphere, even a king, as they decide how to relate to religious matters or worship. They can worry that if we did get on the same page theologically, I would lose power. And so I don't want us to be on the same page theologically. I don't want there to be a unity of worship because that would go badly for me politically. That's a fascinating little gem of insight into the way that people are and the way that people can relate religiously. And I don't think that it's particular to Rehoboam. And I don't think that it's particular to Jeroboam that these dynamics play out the way that they do. These are types of people in types of circumstances. These are types of situations that are common. This is how peoples break apart. This is how factions form. This is how there gets to be division with regards to worship. Honestly, it makes me think of the book by Mark Knoll, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, talking about the first American Civil War, the hot war fought over states' rights and slavery, both and, not either or, both and. Before it was a hot war, it was a war of words. It was a theological disagreement. And that is to say as well that right now, upstream of the political division, the political instability between Republicans and Democrats, upstream of the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado saying 
nope, Trump can't be on the ballot because he's guilty of having tried to wage a treasonous, seditious insurrection surrounding the results of the 2020 election. He's not allowed to be on the ballot this next go-round or ever again in the state of Colorado. Upstream of the decision by the Colorado Supreme Court is a theological debate. It's a theological crisis where Republicans hold to a certain basic theological framework, even just in their platform, even if individual conservatives and Republicans don't have any strong Christian faith or religion at all of any kind, they still adhere to a platform which they regard as being the most successful. Maybe they're being utilitarians about it, sure. But nevertheless, there's a theological position upstream of the Republican platform, and there's a theological position that's upstream of the Democrat platform. And it's just a matter of time. It's not necessarily an immediate thing, just like it wasn't an immediate thing when Solomon went after the gods of his foreign wives. Boom. No longer king. Just like that. No. The warning was given, and actually it looks, and the way these things typically work would bear this out, but it looks like it was a progression. It was a slide into idolatry for Solomon, and in his old age, a prophet of the Lord, a man of God, told Jeroboam, that 10 of the tribes of Israel would be given to him to be king over, and just one would be left to the son of Solomon. And that's exactly what happened. But it wasn't immediate even when the pronouncement of judgment was given. It hasn't been immediate, the consequences of the theological divide between Republicans and Democrats, between the right and the left. But it's interesting because even as we find in the case of Jeroboam, and Rehoboam, God giving 10 tribes of Israel to Jeroboam, what's the first thing Jeroboam is recorded as doing as king over the 10 tribes of Israel? What does he do? He has two golden calves set up for worship so that the people of Israel don't go to Solomon's temple and turn back to having Rehoboam be king over them. He recognizes that theology is upstream of politics and culture and economics, and he acts accordingly. He acts very foolishly, but then that is to say, too, that Republicans and Democrats can follow a very similar trajectory if these are the fundamentals. If these are the basics of human nature, not just individual humans, but humans in community, humans in a nation, in a people, especially where there is disagreement, where there is division. Republicans may be in the place of a Jeroboam, for instance. A good administrator he is. He does good work. He's recognized for his quality by the men of Israel. They are going to make him king. And like Samuel Rutherford points out in Lex Rex, a lot of this is God putting qualities into a man and then allowing the people to see those qualities and then they want him to be a ruler over them. And that's actually what it means that God institutes and establishes authorities, that God gives gifts to some men and allows their quality to be known and seen 
by the people who will make a man a king, for instance, for example, or make a man president, or make him the governor of a state, or make him the mayor of a city, etc., etc. But just like God can give authority to Jeroboam, and then Jeroboam can turn right around and do a very similar thing to what Solomon did that cost him the kingdom, that is, forgetting who it is that put him in the position of authority, who gave him the wisdom, who gave him peace on all sides, who gave him economic prosperity and wealth. Never mind all that. A pretty face and a lovely figure is all it takes to get me to go and worship some other god or all of the gods of the nations, even. In the case of Jeroboam, being a competent administrator, a competent public servant, and then king, even established by God does not mean that we don't have a theological problem in short order. I haven't talked about it on this podcast really at all to speak of, but the Colorado Supreme Court weighing in on the 2024 election is a big deal. It's a really big deal for the escalation that it represents. It's hard to go back from a state Supreme Court saying, no, people aren't even going to have the option to vote for you in our state. Chris Enlow over at The Blaze published a bit of reporting December 21st. Democrats privately admit the inevitable after Colorado bars Trump from the ballot, attempting election interference. Democrats are privately upset with the Colorado Supreme Court because they believe the ruling that bars Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot will ultimately help the former president. The message of President Joe Biden's campaign is clear. Trump is an existential threat to American democracy, but officials in the Biden administration and Biden campaign fear the Colorado Supreme Court has undercut their narrative. NBC News, citing sources, reported that officials in both the White House and Biden campaign are, quote, pissed, unquote, with the Colorado Supreme Court because the ruling makes it look, quote, like Colorado is attempting election interference through non-elected Democratic-appointed justices with funding from shady left-wing donors, end quote. In fact, Democratic officials are so worried about the political ramifications of the ruling that they hope Supreme Court justices unanimously rule in Trump's favor if and when they hear an appeal of the Colorado decision. Quote, we all hope Biden wakes up on Christmas morning to an A3 story of the Delaware News Journal saying that the Supreme Court ruled 9-0 in favor of Trump, end quote. A Democratic source told NBC News that another legal judgment against Trump would help his campaign is not a surprise. After all, Trump's polling only went up after his criminal indictments, and he now leads Biden in most polls. Democratic strategist Chris Coffinis told NBC News that the Colorado decision, quote, feeds the Trump persecution complex, end quote. But it does more than that. For the average American, the decision proves it. And we'll just stop right there and we'll recognize that you have to have a theological position relative equal weights and measures, relative what is justice, what is fairness, what is good that you would reward those who do it, what is evil that you would punish those who do it. You have to have theological positions. The Democrats have a certain set of theological positions which are evident from the positions that they take on specific issues. Say, for instance, climate change. Say, for instance, public health policy. Say, for instance, public education. Say, for instance, gender theory and critical race theory. And yes, say, for instance, Donald Trump. And so also, though there is plenty of variability among Republicans and conservatives, what's common, and this is borne out by the 
percentage of Republicans nationwide who favor Trump above the other contenders for the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential election. What is common to the Republicans is a different notion of what justice is, what is fairness, what is truth, how do you know what is good, who says an equal application and protection of the laws is disagreed about here. Do the ends justify the means? And is there an authority over you who has spoken, who rules and reigns over the affairs of man who sees your heart individually, sees your hearts corporately and collectively, and will render judgment in due time or even in real time? Yes or no? If you answer yes, you're more likely to be a Republican. That's just all there is to it. If you answer no, well then why not? Why not be a Democrat? It certainly does seem to pay better. And you're given so much license. You're given so much you're allowed to do with regards to having children or not having children, aborting children that you don't want, sending them off to public education, government schooling to be raised by somebody else. And that's just the stark truth of it. Let someone else have the responsibility. I'm going to go do what I want to do. I'm going to go work or pursue my hobbies, pursue my interests. I'm going to spend my time how I want to spend it. Let somebody else figure out what my kids need to know, not just about reading, writing, arithmetic, natural sciences, history, social studies, but also about right and wrong. If you are a Republican, if you are a conservative in America, you are more likely to say, absolutely not. Even if I do send my kids to public schools, I still am going to be very involved and I want to know that what they're being taught is actually true. If you're a Democrat, if you vote Democrat, you're probably going to defer to the experts or you are the expert in which case you're holding more for deference to experts. But this business about Trump being taken off the ballot in the state of Colorado, when it's Democrats all the way down making the decision within the state of Colorado that this is good, we have a different definition of good. We do not agree about what is good. And that's because at root, we don't agree about who says and how do you determine. But then again, that's not, proof as far as biblical anthropology goes or a biblical political theology is concerned. That's not proof that the other side is possessing clean hands and a pure heart. It may be that altogether we are under judgment and this sort of political strife, this sort of division is an act of God as judgment on our nation for our sins as individuals and our sins as a people that we don't repent of, that this is what we get, that there would be significant division and instability. And yes, it does. It does make us weaker. It does make us more vulnerable. And it does make our allies more vulnerable who depend on us. It does make us poorer. It makes us less prosperous, less safe. But then that's the nature of the judgment on Israel and Judah as well. You know, Those who say, they're opposed to so-called Christian nationalism because we're not Israel. America's not Israel. That's Old Covenant. That's Old Testament. They're missing the point that God is God. Whether we are Israel, God is God, and this is how God relates to nations and peoples and people in authority, individuals and groups. You could even say parties, factions who rule over nations at the either toleration or 
active encouragement of the citizenry, the common man, heads of household, whether they're passively or actively supportive, their governments represent them. If they didn't represent them, then they wouldn't be in those positions of authority. Or if not to represent, then to test. And that's the other reason that perhaps this is just what it is for the foreseeable future. Or maybe this is the end of America. God himself has done this thing, both to judge those who are wicked, who do not know him, and also to test and to show the character of, to show the genuineness of our faith for those of us who love God. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We rejoice in the truth and we are grieved by all this. But take heart. Tell the righteous it will go well with them. I live in the state of Colorado and I'm very disappointed. One, I'm disappointed that we have the state government that we have as far as our governor, as far as our legislature, as far as our Supreme Court. I'm very disappointed and this is shameful. It's corrupt. It's wicked. It's ungodly. It's not just. I hate that. Another thing I hate and I'm very disappointed about is the fatalism, pessimistic fatalism of so many who know better, but they feign confusion, their hands off, they're disinterested. You can't get them to engage. They're lazy or they're cowardly. They can't be bothered. They've somehow been convinced that it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's just lost. There's no point. And guess what? They're part of the problem because they're so hands-off, because they're so disinterested. You can't even get them to talk about these things. They're going to change the subject or find somebody else to go and talk with, or they're going to avoid you. And it's irresponsible. It's negligent. But it's also proof that the consequences we suffer together will be just desserts, both for those who actively participated and those who passively said, this is fine. No, it's not fine. But so be it. Something we have to understand about God is that he's not all stressed out. (laughs) We might be stressed out and we need to work on that. We need to pray about that. Be anxious for nothing means nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. Present your requests to God. Trust that God knows what you need. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Some take that to mean, well, then I can be hands off. I can be disinterested. I don't have to worry about anything. That means I don't have to pay any attention. I don't have... I don't need to attend to these things. I don't need to work on them. I don't need to study. I don't need to know what's up. I don't need to be involved or engaged at all. I don't need to be a part of the conversation. I don't need to weigh in. I don't need to work. And what is that? Laziness and cowardice and passivity and foolishness. Now, it's one thing if you actually do invest yourself and you say, okay, this is as much as I can invest and no more. And I trust the results to God. And then the results end up being, it seems at face value, nothing good. No benefit. We didn't move the needle. And you say, okay, well, that's what it is. But I trust that God will see his will be done. And I know that his will is good. And we'll trust ourselves to his tender mercies and his grace, his goodness and his justice. If justice is not being done by men, we trust that God will see the justice is done. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You know, that's one thing. But it's another thing if you don't invest yourself at all. And then the needle doesn't move, or it moves in the opposite direction. It moves towards things getting worse and worse. We are poorer. We are silent as others are being led away to the slaughter. We are silent as others are impoverished and defrauded and slandered. 
We say nothing. We don't open our mouths. We don't speak up for them. We don't plead with them. We don't try to reason with them. We don't try to make the simple wise. If that is the circumstance and it gets worse and worse, then we have a theological problem upstream of a practical effect, just like the Israelites did, just like the tribe of Judah following after Rehoboam did, just like the nation of Israel, the people of Israel following after Jeroboam did, so also us. And that's where some people go and they say, well, if there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats, I don't have time for this. I've got too much else I need to be focused on and working on. I say, even when it comes to your own local government, your own local community, you are disinterested. And then you say, that's none of my business. That's none of my affair. I have my own job. I don't have time for that. I have my own family. I don't have time for that. Well, I'm sorry, but listen, your ability to actually retain your earnings, other people's ability to pay you those earnings in the first place is in question here. Your family, you talk about your family. You've got to focus on taking care of your family. You're not focused on taking care of your family if you pay no attention, no regard, you give no investment at all to how your community is doing. What is the public safety discussion at present? What are the tax increases that are being debated? And for what? And will they make your family, your children, poorer, less safe? How is that not a part of taking care of your family, minding your own affairs? How is that not a part of loving your neighbor as yourself? Again, I say we have a theological problem upstream of practical effects. And God's not anxious about it. We shouldn't be anxious about it, but we should take it seriously. And God does take it seriously. And then also to have a piece with that, God says, fine, very well, you've chosen this. And so you get the consequences, you get the effects. And if those effects are good, then you can be glad and you can thank God. If those effects are actually pain and suffering, not because of righteousness sake, but because of folly and laziness, slothfulness, you know, the principle of he who does not work shall not eat. If those are the effects, just make sure you're not bitter against God as though it's God's fault that those were the effects that came from inaction, disengagement, disinterest. Moving on to our next story here. Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee posted November 8th. So yeah, this is a month and three weeks old, but it's okay. Vivek just sniped the entire Republican Party and the media moderators of this debate, and I love it. Here we have an embedded video that was posted to X by Ashley St. Clair. It's about a minute long, and it's Vivek Ramaswamy at one of the primary debates between the various contenders for the Republican nomination. And I want you to think about, before I play the video, I want you to think about the division in Israel as Rehoboam is having 10 tribes taken from him. He ascends to the throne. His father Solomon has died. He gets counsel from the old men who used to serve his father. And then he gets advice from the young men he grew up with, how to reply to the people. As the people say, please lighten the burden on us. The burden is heavy. Apparently, it wasn't all just economic benefit for Israel. Solomon did very well, but he also put a lot of men to conscription. 
to build these buildings, to make himself wealthy, to support foreign visitors who came to Israel. And yes, that probably stimulated the economy, but also it made apparently an impression on a lot of Israelites, and it cost them. They felt as though they were less well-off as a result, and they could be doing better individually than they were. Solomon, living in luxury, being the subject of much talk among the nations, a great deal of honor. Now that he had passed, they wanted essentially less tax. Think tax in a broader sense. Tax can be money that's taken out of your paycheck and given to the government. Tax can also be time, attention, energy, whatever pulls you away from what you would rather be doing can be taxing. So after a fashion, the people are asking Rehoboam to lighten the tax load on them when they ask to reduce the yoke. One possible response, and this is the counsel of the older men, is to say, you bet. (laughs) You want relief? You want me to tax you less than my father did? You got it. The other response is to say, I'm going to tax you even harder than my father did. Rehoboam takes the wrong advice, and it costs him. And the division that results, as Israel says, we have no portion in you. We reject you, Rehoboam. We reject the house of David. We have no portion in the house of David. The division that results from that is, according to God, from him. So don't fight. Don't fight with each other. But this division, this loss of trust in Rehoboam on the part of Israel is from God, and it's the consequence of the previous generation of government having forgotten God. Now that you're thinking about that with regards to 1 Kings chapter 12, listen to this clip. This will be cut one. Vivek Ramaswamy posted November 8th, and then I have some thoughts. And frankly, look, the people there cheering for losing in the Republican Party. Think about who's moderating this debate. This should be Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk. We'd have 10 times the viewership asking questions that GOP primary voters actually care about and bringing more people into our party. You think the Democrats, and we've got Christian Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? They wouldn't do it. And so the fact of the matter is, I mean, Chris, I'm going to use this time because this is actually about you in the media and the corrupt media establishment. Ask you the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that you pushed on this network for years. Was that real or was that Hillary Clinton made up disinformation? Answer the question. Go. Mr. Ross. This is how we get our country back. We need accountability because this media rigged the 2016 election. They rigged the 2020 election with a Hunter Biden laptop story. And they're going to rig this election. Your time is up. Let me turn to governor. Okay, so there we go. What have we here? Vivek Ramaswamy calling out not just the media, not just the moderators with NBC News moderating this debate, but also calling out the Republican Party for wanting to lose, as in, The Republican Party is okay with throwing the election if that is what it takes to not have Donald Trump return to the White House. That's essentially what Vivek Ramaswamy is getting at. They were negligent when it was the 2016 election, and there was a whole lot of dishonesty and manipulation being perpetrated in plain sight out in the open. 
they were also, if not actively involved, passively acquiescent with the fraud of the 2020 election. That whole year, they were either actively or passively participants with the Democrats in getting Trump out of there. Why? Because he was bad for their bottom line. And what was that really about? I think it was about the exact same sort of a thing that Rehoboam's childhood buddies had in mind when they gave the bad counsel. Bad counsel was given to him. Oh, the people are asking for a lightened load, essentially, to not govern them so hard, not tax them so much in the way of conscription, taking materials and wealth from them to do what Rehoboam wants to do as he is king, like Solomon did so much of. Oh, they want a lighter burden? No, 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 no. Tell the people we're going to be even more taxed under Rehoboam. My father disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. It was bad counsel, and it led to division. And what do we see? We see quite a lot of division in American politics, not just between Republicans and Democrats. We see quite a lot of division among so-called Republicans. And we'll be talking about that more in this episode. But here we've got a Vivek Ramaswamy running for either president or vice president or some kind of a cabinet position, it seems like to me. And I'm not alone in thinking that. Actually, one thing and hoping Trump will be president, and it's looking fairly inevitable that he will get the nomination. And unless there is even more fraud, in the 2024 election than there was in the 2020 election, just like there was more fraud in the 2020 election than there was in the 2016 election. And by fraud, we have to think much bigger than people stuffing ballot boxes with fraudulent votes for their candidate, taking ballots out of the counting for Trump. We have to think much bigger than that. We have to think also what stories were suppressed by the corporate news media and social media, what stories were amplified that weren't true, how were things spun, that is also a kind of fraud. It's the most obvious kind of fraud. The Colorado Supreme Court saying Trump's not even allowed on the ballot, that's election interference, that's fraud. The portrayal of January 6th, that's fraud. But we have quite a lot of division among so-called Republicans, just like we have so much division between Republicans and Democrats. We have a lot of division among so-called conservatives. We have a lot of division among so-called Christians. And what is this downstream of? It's downstream of a fundamental theological difference. What justifies the means to the ends? Is it just that you want a certain end result? And so anything you might not do that you should do is suddenly okay. Anything that you might do that you shouldn't do is suddenly okay, as long as you get the results that you wanted. That is more common and it's more typical among the Democrats to say, as long as we get the results we want. Hey, aborting a child. Okay. Yeah. Let's not talk about whether that's murder. Yeah. It's a tragedy. I'm not personally for abortion, but as long as we get the results that we want to get, which is to say, as long as young people stay in school and they finish their degree program and they get a nice high paying job and they're allowed to grow up and see the world and self-actualize, as long as all that is the result, then it's okay to murder, essentially. We won't call it a murder. We'll call it an abortion, but it's okay. 
yeah, you know, some of the stuff that's going on in the public schools, it's not okay. But as long as mom and dad both get to work, as long as they get to pursue their dreams, as long as they're not stressed out about having to figure out their kid's curriculum, then it's okay. Yeah, you know, the church teaching that all of this is okay and normalizing it and pouring cheap grace on depravity, untruths, wickedness of all kinds, instead of calling for repentance of those things. Oh, you know, that's not so good. I don't like that. But as long as the result is that we have more people attending our church and we have people who cut big checks to support the staff and the operations of the church, well, that's good. And so, you know, it's okay. It's okay for us to not say all that we should that is in the whole counsel of God that is in scripture that pertains to what's going on. And it's okay for us to say some things that are very much not in the biblical text that we're reading into the biblical text so that we can justify ourselves, so that we can get the results that we want to get. This is a theological difference upstream, practical effects. And the division that results is not to be misunderstood. If you believe in a sovereign God who rules and reigns over the affairs of men, instead of the deist watchmaker God who winds the universe up and just lets it do its thing, and then he's hands off, he just watches from a distance, arms folded, disinterested. If you believe in the sovereign God of the Bible, who rules and reigns over the affairs of men, who judges the hearts of men, then you have to admit that just like there are blessings when we together as one people pursue righteousness and that those blessings come from God, not because that's just how he designed the universe, like a deist watchmaker God, but that's how he actively intervenes to prosper a people who are exalted by righteousness. Then you have to also believe that the same God whose character is demonstrated when he brings division between Rehoboam's followers among the tribe of Judah, and on the other hand, Jeroboam's followers in the other 10 tribes, the Levites excluded, obviously. That's where you would get your 12th. The same God who allows there to be division and that there would be division and that that is a consequence of idolatry and false worship and faithlessness, we should expect will relate to our country in like manner. And it would seem that he is. But the division we should not misunderstand as being the sole responsibility of the godliest people to resolve if the division at times actually is part of the judgment that a people is under for having forgotten God. Again, this is a theological position that we have to take upstream of the practical effects instead of being utilitarians about it and saying, well, whatever brings unity back, that's what we need to say. That's what we need to do. Instead of saying that, we need to say that the division is as much and more the result of people having forsaken the Lord their God, having no fear of God before their eyes. Unity, unity is like the call of the false pietists in the Old Testament that the prophets spoke against by the Spirit of God who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Unity, unity, when there is no unity. How can there be unity when everybody does what's right in their own eyes? They oppress their neighbor, they defraud the sojourner, they neglect providing for their wives, their children, their extended family. They pass by on the other side if they see a man beaten and left for dead by highway robbers. They pretend they have not seen it when others are being led away to the slaughter. 
How can there be unity? How can there be peace when that characterizes a people that they go worshiping other gods? And then as part of their worship of those other gods, they come to some very different conclusions about what is good. How do we actualize this vision of the good life? Well, this God over here, Molech, he says he'll bless us if we offer our children in the fire to him. I mean, prosperity is a good thing. We've had prosperity worshiping Yahweh God, and so it's kind of the same, right? No, that's not at all the same. When God expressly forbade you from offering your children in the fire, you can't worship Yahweh God and Molech. I guess you'll just worship Molech. I guess you'll just face the wrath of God unless you're willing to repent. And of course there will be division. But the onus is not on the worshipers of Yahweh God to compromise with the worshipers of Chemosh and Molech and Ashtoreth. As though if we could just stop being so picky about our religious practice, about our theological positions, about our Christian faith, we could just stop being so judgy about good and evil, true and false. We could just learn to live and let live, we could have a bigger movement here and we would have unity. Yeah, we could. We could. We would have unity apart from God and we would all together go to hell in a handbasket. That doesn't sound preferable to me. Better that there would be a remnant preserved after the dust settles and those of you who have unified on godlessness have been cleared away, have been swept away, have blown away in the wind like so much chaff. Better that we would have a remnant who was preserved by God himself than that we would unify on being crooked. I draw your attention next to an article I can't in good conscience read for you on the podcast because you really should pay for a subscription to the Epoch Times and just read it yourself. But the Republican battle between neoconservatism and America First by Nathan Worcester at the Epoch Times I will make reference to, and I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. And if you do subscribe to the Epoch Times, you can go and read it. I bring it to your attention because of the subtitle here, a quote from Steve Bannon. You can't really win a Republican primary or even really be competitive being a neocon. Impossible. Here we have the featured image as well, which I'll explain. Nikki Haley on the one side of the picture Vivek Ramaswamy on the other side. What's being distinguished here is neoconservatism on Nikki Haley's side, America first on Vivek Ramaswamy's side. Trump is contemplating, reportedly, having Nikki Haley be his running mate. Tucker Carlson has said very publicly that he would not support him. In fact, he would oppose Donald Trump's candidacy if Nikki Haley were named his vice presidential running mate. Vivek Ramaswamy, on the other hand, looks like, in a lot of ways, a much better pick. At least what he's articulating is America first, and it's a fresh perspective. But that is to say that neoconservatism is really not so neo. It's really not so new. It was new at one point, but then was it really pseudo-conservatism? That's the question. Is neoconservatism better described as pseudo-conservatism because it's not so conservative, or it's conserving a globalist paradigm that is foreign to, antithetical to, the American political tradition. It's not actually conserving what it means to be an American for Americans. 
there's a lot of friction between the neocons and the America First people. And that division that I was talking about, we keep talking about, instead of it being a bug, it may be a feature of the judgment that we're under. You may be thinking, well, if we could just stop being so divided and get it together, surely we would be better off. Ah, But what positions we rally around and get together on and unify on, that makes a bigger difference than just unity in the abstract. There's too much easy believism about unity, unity, and it may be hubris. In fact, I think it is quite a lot of hubris to suppose there's something inherently superior to us as Americans if we forsake the faith of our forefathers in Jesus Christ, in the core ideals predicated on the Bible, on what God's word says is good and true. If we forsake all of that and we think that we can hold this together just by sheer force of being Americans, then we've become wise in our own eyes and we will be proven quite wrong, quite mistaken. Pseudo-conservatism is not where it's at, but then to say there is such a thing as pseudo-conservatism and that that's neoconservatism, and it's really not conserving much or anything. It's been tried and it's caused quite a lot of poverty. Our taxes have been too high. Our civil liberties have eroded. Our individual capacity for self-determination and owning a home, owning a vehicle, making decisions for the well-being of our families and our communities, all of that has been eroded by so-called neoconservatism. It's the opposite of conservatism, actually, in that case. Neoconservatism really came to the fore under President George W. Bush. No child left behind was a train wreck. If you really wanted more children to get a better education and to have a better outcome, you would have opted for school choice instead of greater investment in the public education system, compulsory government schooling, which is a very progressive thing. You misattributed America's past success to public schools instead of correctly identifying how American public schools, together with the Great Society programs and FDR's New Deal initiatives, have made us all poorer and less free, more dependent, less capable, less cohesive. And then there were the 9-11 terror attacks. And the next thing you know, we're off to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the next thing you know, we've got the Patriot Act. And it just so happens, so conveniently, with the rise of the internet age, there's mass surveillance of potential terrorists. Everybody could be a potential terrorist or a terrorist sympathizer. And if you've got nothing to hide, well, then you shouldn't be worried about the government reading your mail as a private citizen. And at the same time, statements were made publicly by George W. Bush that we're not at war with Islam. No, no. Christians, Muslims, we worship the same God. No, no, we don't. Not in spirit and in truth, we don't. Even the devil presents himself as an angel of light. And that's a good way to sum up not just Islam, but definitely Islam. And yet that was the beginning of neoconservatism. And now there's this global mandate to combat extremism, so-called. And isn't it so unsurprising, actually, but convenient, that neoconservatism saying we need to combat extremism 
at home and abroad to make America more safe from, we don't want to call it this, but Islamic terrorism. Isn't it so convenient, but not really all that surprising that that got twisted into let's go after the conservative Christians in America who need to not be in political power because we're going to call them extremisms, latest iteration, ugliest face here in our own country will justify censoring them and barring them from holding public office by manipulating the narrative in the news and on social media and in popular culture. Isn't it so convenient that the neoconservative posture preferring a vague notion of who is God, how do we understand what is good according to him, what is true according to him. Isn't it so interesting that that was upstream of all of these tools and all of these mechanisms so easily being turned on American Christians? Make the threat fuzzy enough and then watch as the radical left says, this is why we've got to harass a baker in Colorado and take him to the Supreme Court and try and destroy his business, destroy his life because he wouldn't bake a cake. Say that the bogeyman is so-called religious extremism and then use that to drive conservative Christian values, not just from courthouses and public schools, but also from the online public square or even in real life, in corporations. What you can say, what you can't say, what you can display, what you can do, that's going to be dictated by what would be inclusive, what would be tolerant, what would be diverse, what would be supposedly equitable for people who hold to all manner of faith traditions, people who identify as gender nonconforming or queer, homosexual, bisexual, etc., If they're transgender, well, now we have to rewrite not just the laws of the land, but also the policies of the corporation that you work for. And increasingly, you're going to have to work for a corporation because it's just easier for the big government to work with big corporations. And it's easier for politicians to get ample donations from big corporations. That's neoconservatism. And for all the reasons that we should have been opposed to it on the front end, you now have an increasing number of Americans who don't want that. They do not want a neoconservative in the White House again. So Trump is called a populist. But maybe more to the point, he is articulating an older kind of conservatism, and it's popular, where you say America should be paying attention to what helps America to be prosperous and safe first. We can't help others if our own house is in complete disarray. Maybe America first, so-called, is getting all of the flack for being divisive, but actually, if we go back, the pseudo-conservatism introduced the division in the first place. Progressives introduced the division by saying, we're going to sweep away everything that has worked to this point because we have a better idea. Why? Because we're inherently superior. How do you know? Well, because we're oppressed. We're a coalition of oppressed peoples or we speak for the oppressed, and suffering is how you get to be more virtuous. And the ones who have caused us to suffer, they're the bad people. And so that's how we know that we're inherently superior. We'll define progress as what benefits us, what benefits the people who say they've been oppressed. 
Doesn't that introduce division? Why is the onus not on the neoconservatives to justify having introduced division among conservatives? Basically, it's progressive conservatism. That's what neoconservatives thought really boils down to. Why do we need new conservatism? Because the old conservatism shouldn't be conserved anymore? Isn't that kind of oxymoronic? That seems like the fox guarding the hen house, essentially, as far as conservatism goes. And that's what it is. And you progressives, why is the onus not on you for having divided the country? You got some people to vote for you. I'll grant you that. And you did get elections won fair and square, I suppose, here and there. But it was a faulty premise. And the division that now characterizes our political process, our national conversation, that division is downstream of compromises with regards to theology. Essentially, neoconservatism was just the progressive prescription with a little bit of Republican-sounding catchphrases sprinkled in. That's what it boils down to. And this is also, oh, by the way, why the neoconservatives would sooner see the Democrats win because that would be more progress. They're happy to conserve the new status quo which is progressive. And they would prefer that to going back to an older style of conservatism, which is articulated by this America first mindset. Not just the people who vote for and support Donald Trump, but quite a lot of those people represent an older way of being an American. And you may say, well, this is all very sad though. There's so much disagreement. There's so much conflict. I hate that. I hate that People have lost friendships over these things. People have lost the ability to get together and talk with their family over this. And I say, yeah, yeah, it really stinks that so many have given up on the inherent goodness and truth of God's word. That really stinks. There really are painful consequences for that. And those painful consequences at the end of the line can be up to and including the destruction of a people, and a nation. And that destruction comes all the swifter if everybody piles into the same failed prescription. If we define unity on the terms of godlessness, covetousness, hubris, our unity will actually hasten our downfall. But that's exactly what so many are calling for. Let's all just unify, and unity is the answer. Yeah, but unity on a faulty premise, is not what we want. That's not what we need. And oh, by the way, for all the talk of, are the America First people open to reason? Are they willing to be persuaded? That's a two-way street. Are the folks who are insisting on conserving the new status quo, the progressive status quo, are they open to reason? I would say no. And I would say, given that they're the ones who introduced the division in the first place, they're the ones who have the responsibility to resolve it by apologizing for their failed ideas, apologizing for harmful policies that have promoted poverty, a loss of liberty, a loss of love at root, because they would get stronger as a result. That was all they needed to know. And we hear the tell when the talk is of what we need to do to win, first and foremost. Now, what's interesting is Steve Bannon's quote here, you can't really win a Republican primary or even really be competitive being a neocon, impossible. 
But then that's the effort. That's the hope is that over time you change the definition of these ideas and these terms and you build things out in such a way that people can't even imagine. They don't have any memory of a time before neoconservatism to where it is everything within the state, nothing outside the state. But then you just have some who are a little milder in their totalitarianism and some who are more severe. Some who are good cops and some who are bad cops, but it's all cops instead of common people who govern themselves by way of proxies, by way of elected representatives who are responsive. There's a kind of contempt that the neocons have for the rank and file conservatives who show up to either vote for them or vote against them, vote for the other guy. There's a kind of contempt and there's an elitism. And that elitism is very similar to the counsel that is given to Rehoboam by the guys that he grew up with. Tell the people, if they want taxed less, my father disciplined you with whips, I'll discipline you with scorpions. I'm going to increase the weight of your yoke. And yet it's interesting that what Jesus says in the Gospels is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now he does say, unless a man is willing to take up his cross and follow after him, he is in no ways worthy of him. He does say that. But then that is also to say that what gets a follower of Jesus crucified is typically not that they're just flattering whatever the status quo happens to be at the time. It's not that they just say yes, yes to whatever the establishment morality is telling them is good or not good today. For our next consideration, I highlight a blog post by Aaron M. Wren from December 12th. Don't criticize your in-group in the out-groups forums is the title of it. He writes, where you say something can be as important as what you say. It's a good thing to want to hold your own people accountable, but where and how to do that is important. I recently wrote an op-ed criticizing the idea of Christian nationalism. I said yes when asked to do this because it was for the American Mind, a publication of the very conservative Claremont Institute. I would not have written it for a liberal publication or one with the reputation of being hostile to Christian nationalism. When I worked for the Manhattan Institute, I observed that one of the easiest ways for a conservative to get positive coverage or an op-ed placed in the elite media publication was to criticize Republicans or conservatives using the left's value system as the rationale. Some never-Trump types turned this into de facto full-time gigs. See also David French, by the way. I myself once wrote an article criticizing Protestant church architecture for a Catholic architecture journal. I did it because I held the editor and the publication in high regard, and still do. But I realized in retrospect, I should not have done that. I should not have criticized an element of Protestantism in a Catholic publication. It would only reinforce the Catholic sense of their own superiority. I think my ideas were broadly right, but I chose the wrong venue to express them. I resolved not to do that again. For example, I've been a critic of how Indiana's Republicans have governed the state. Surely one of the national publications where I have bylines would love to receive a pitch from me trashing the Indiana GOP. But I don't want to create bad national press for my state. And I especially don't want to do it by catering to the left's value system, reinforcing their moral hegemony. So I elected to write a long piece in a niche policy journal, American Affairs, instead. 
When I started this newsletter, I set as one of my guiding principles, don't criticize other Christians in the liberal, secular media if you can avoid it, and certainly do not criticize them from the secular value system of the publication in question, end quote. I'd rather have a smaller audience for my ideas than gain a big one by flattering the sensibilities of people who don't like evangelicals or conservatives. Elite media like the Washington Post and New York Times figured out that the lure of a byline in those places would be too tempting for many conservative Christians to ignore. Those Christians were willing to write harshly critical op-eds for those publications that used the value system of the secular publication for their critiques. We've seen this many times already from Russell Moore, David French, thank you, what did I say? And a relatively small group of others whose names repeatedly occur in anti-evangelical media hit pieces. Their message would surely be unpopular in any case, but their choice of venues angers people and raises legitimate questions about whether their desire is truly evangelical reform or seeking approval from secular elites. Yes, quite right. There was another case of this last week when producer Rob Reiner, no friend of Christianity to say the least, dropped the trailer for his new documentary, God and Country, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. Here we have an embedded tweet from Rob Reiner. Quote, Christian nationalism is not only a danger to our country, it's a danger to Christianity itself. Our film will be coming to theaters in February. Watch the trailer here. Aaron Wren writes, following that embedded tweet, it is chock full of the usual suspects. In response, John Fay wrote some interesting reflections on choosing a venue to express your ideas. Quote, as someone who speaks to the media often, this is something I really wrestle with and will continue to wrestle with. I have been accused many, many times of throwing my fellow evangelicals under the bus in order to give the secular media what they want to hear. The temptation to do this is real, and I have probably succumbed to it more than once. End quote. He notes how he published his book, Believe Me, with a Christian publisher rather than a more prestigious mainstream imprint specifically to avoid this trap. Quote, when I wrote, believe me, not a day went by in which I did not think the mainstream media was using me to advance its agenda. Actually, one of the reasons I published, believe me, with a Christian press as opposed to a trade press was because many of the trade presses and literary agents I approached wanted me to write a book that was more scathing and more critical of evangelicals. I wouldn't do it. End quote. He also notes that paradoxically, sometimes secular elite media is the only place you can publish, get an outlet. Quote, sometimes it's tough for critics of evangelicalism who remain in the evangelical fold, like me, to find a place to publish critical pieces. Christianity Today, for example, rarely publishes the kind of stuff I write about my evangelical tribe. My passion is to reach my fellow evangelicals with some good Christian thinking, but very few evangelical churches want to hear what I have to say because they think it might be too divisive. Moreover, I am guessing that my fellow evangelicals read and watch secular media more than they do Christian media. It is likely that I would speak to more evangelicals in the Washington Post or the Atlantic than I would at Christianity Today, end quote. Aaron Wren continues. He mentions starting his own publication in order to have an outlet for his ideas. I can certainly relate to what he's saying here. It's also the case that, as Faye basically says, my guiding principle around where to publish is just that. It's not a moral law, so it has to be applied with wisdom and judgment. There may be times to make an exception, or we have to navigate gray areas in whether something we are pitching to a major media outlet uses their value system in its arguments or your own. For example, my piece about online men's influencers in the Wall Street Journal was in a secular publication and did criticize evangelicals, but it's also a conservative publication. I included other traditional authorities along with the church in my critique and saying that online men's influencers get some things right certainly isn't the secular value system. 
or think about publishing my Three Worlds of Evangelicalism article in First Things, technically ecumenical, but known, I think rightly so, as a basically Catholic publication. Undoubtedly, the piece had much greater reach and impact as a result of being in First Things, and my piece is not a Catholic-inflected critique of evangelicalism. In fact, it was much more analytical than critical, and the Three Worlds framework has applicability well beyond evangelicalism. But I'm not above critique. Maybe people think I got these wrong. I at least want to be thinking about the issues. To be clear, I think it's great to get published in the New York Times. There's nothing wrong with that. But what you say and the rationales you give need to be a consideration. If you criticize your in-group in the out-groups forum using the value system of the out-group, don't be surprised if you alienate a lot of people and receive a lot of hate in return. Maybe that's something you don't care about or even relish. Sadly, in today's world, hate is a commodity you can monetize. Regardless, thinking about the venue where you say something is as important as thinking about what it is you actually want to say. And I think that's fair. Now, that's the end of Aaron Wren's blog post. I think that's fair. Now, that said, it is a real problem. It's a real dilemma. What if the notion of unity is so fragile that you can't disagree without people saying that's inherently divisive and you've made us your enemies if you say it anywhere. You can't say it here and we don't want you going anywhere else and saying it either because fundamentally we're defining unity as we all agree. There's no debate. What then? I too have opted for my own publication. Rather than joining somebody else's blog or forum rather than trying to get published in some big magazine or newspaper. Years ago, I decided, first, I'm going to do the blog thing with some cousins because they were willing to, and we broadly agreed. And then in due time, it was just me podcasting. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to podcast because I can say what I want to say, what I am able to say in good conscience and make sure that it's not being hijacked for somebody else's nefarious purpose. To be clear, I am not trying to destroy the mainstream of American evangelicalism when I am critical of excessive ecumenicalism, doctrinal minimalism, radical egalitarianism, superficiality, naivety, passivity, emasculation in mainstream American evangelicalism. I'm not trying to destroy mainstream American evangelicalism but I think some people would be content with that and their criticisms and where they criticize and how they criticize and whether they ever come up with a better idea or whether they're happy to just get the press, to get the publication, to get the accolades from the people who do want to destroy American evangelicalism, conservative Christianity in America, conservative Christian influence in America, I should say more to the point. Those people... It's fair to criticize, in fact, those people right alongside those who passively empower them and actually give them quite a lot of latitude by restraining any kind of debate, forbidding debate. Now, those people need to be criticized too. And so that's what I'm here doing. And I point to passages like First Kings chapter 12, for instance, where we see division in Israel between Israel and Judah over idolatry over mixing in the worship of the gods of 
other nations with worship of Yahweh, costing the grandson of David the kingdom. Where we see that, we have to distinguish between criticizing as a warning because you're headed for destruction and criticizing so as to bring about destruction. Is it deconstruction because you actually want this to go away if it can't support and affirm progressivism or if you think you can make a quick buck in the process, somebody will pay you 30 pieces of silver to sell out. That's a very different place to criticize from. You're going to have very different kinds of criticism versus if you're saying, hey, we're headed for the cliff. Please get out of the way. (laughs) You're standing between me and the emergency brake or the steering wheel. The bridge is out. So this is good. And this is good what Aaron Wren has to say here as far as it goes. But I think that what the people featured in Rob Reiner's documentary have in common is that they've not just been critical in a general sense of American evangelicalism. There's a common thread in their criticism of American evangelicalism that it's conservative. That is to say, if they consider themselves to be conservatives, they're neocons, which is to say that they're about conserving the progressive status quo. And they are predicating unity in American evangelicalism in the American church on doctrinal minimalism, big tent ecumenicalism, progressivism in a word, functional liberalism, even if on paper the doctrine is orthodox and it's sound. That's as sound as it gets. That's the only place that it's actually sound. Because in conversation, when you're talking through decisions to make together, how you live your life, either individually or corporately, it bears no relation. And you just take your cues from the progressive community around you. The bigger the city that your church is in, the more ready you are to compromise. And you call that having a good testimony. Anything to avoid bad press, anything to avoid being hauled in front of the city council and having worthless men of the city say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Next up though, let's consider briefly when Roe was overturned, an article published in World Magazine in the opinions section of Family and Society by Kevin DeYoung, June 30th of last year, that is 2022, Christians should rejoice in the destruction of an instrument of death. That was the subtitle. And I talked about this when it was first published. And I also talked about this very recently as I was covering Kevin DeYoung's criticism of Doug Wilson and the Moscow mood. And as I was talking about and covering Doug Wilson's response, his rejoinder, as he called it, to Kevin DeYoung. But here I bring it up again because this is, I think, a good example of doing what Aaron Wren is talking about. World Magazine, their tagline is sound journalism grounded in facts and biblical truth. World Magazine is not hostile to conservative Christians. In fact, that's their demographic. That's their core group. That's their community. But when Roe was overturned, the piece by Kevin DeYoung, it's worth noting it was not published at TGC, where, according to Doug Wilson, Kevin DeYoung is on the board. When Roe was overturned, it was not published at the Gospel Coalition. And that's interesting. Whether he asked and they said, no thanks, 
whether he knew that would ruffle feathers and he just didn't publish it there. This is a good example of what Aaron Wren is talking about. One, because Kevin DeYoung published it anyways, pushing back on the ones in pastorates, in professorships, high up in denominations, in American churches, in the U.S., pushing back on those who were saying, now is not a time for conservative Christians to celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade because our neighbors are upset. We're not loving our neighbor well if they're upset and they're angry. This will be like rubbing their faces in it. This will be like squirting lemon juice in their eyes. This will be like rubbing salt in the wound. It's not loving. It's not Christ-like to celebrate right now. In Kevin DeYoung's piece, when Roe was overturned, he talks about Star Wars. And he writes, do you remember the climactic scene from the original Star Wars movie? Luke Skywalker is flying his X-Wing Starfighter through a maze of trenches along the surface of the Death Star after narrowly escaping one attack after another from the Empire. Luke is about to be shot down by Darth Vader, but just in the nick of time, Han Solo and Chewbacca swoop down in the Millennium Falcon and bounce Darth Vader. Luke fires two torpedoes down the thermal exhaust port, and a few seconds later, the Death Star is blown apart. What had seemed impossible to almost everyone was now a reality. The Death Star was gone. I'm sure you remember what comes next. As soon as Luke Skywalker returned his X-Wing to the hangar, he was greeted by muted celebration. One of the other pilots reminded Luke there was still a lot of work to do to make the galaxy safe for hurting people everywhere. A member of the Rebel Alliance asked Luke when he was going to subdue the violent sand people on his home planet of Tatooine. Another friend advised Luke that many people in the galaxy were devastated by the news about the Death Star and that perhaps a time of listening was in order. Now we'll stop right there. It's a great piece by Kevin DeYoung, but this is just dripping with sarcasm. This is satirical. This is highly critical of the excessively conciliatory, neoconservative American evangelical leadership. But to what end? Is the goal here just to throw elbows and offend and be rude and hurtful is the goal here to tear down Christians in America, to tear down Christianity in America, is the goal here to undermine our testimony, our witness, our fellowship. No, not at all, clearly. And yet unity being predicated on us never criticizing, never disagreeing, never debating, would see this piece having never been written or having never been published, or if after publishing, having been apologized for, having been repented of, being rebuked as still more of the same wicked, divisive, selfish, worldly, I mean, it's in World Magazine, but worldly Christianity that's come to characterize America in the age of Trump. This is mean. Kevin DeYoung, how dare you? How dare you write this? You know what's even meaner? When you guilt trip Christians for celebrating the overturning of Roe v. Wade because you prefer being liked by the progressives over innocent unborn children being rescued from the slaughter. You prefer friendship with the world. You prefer friendship with progressives and unity with them over being on the same page with actual conservative, actual Christian fellow Americans. But again, I say, like in 1 Kings chapter 12, what do we see? 
When Rehoboam, verse 21, came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says Yahweh, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. What thing? The division of Israel. Judah having their own king again. Like it was when David was only king over Judah and Ishbosheth was king over the rest of Israel. We're going back to that. But why? What if we just reach for explanations that have to do with people not trying hard enough, not being willing to fight? What if we just reach for those explanations? God says, no, not this time. This thing is from me. Sometimes it is from God that a division exists, that a division comes to be. Why? Because there was wickedness and folly on the part of the person in charge. And so there was a vote of no confidence. We don't trust you. We have no portion with you. You are not pursuing our best interest. You are not here doing what you ought to do. And so we're going to elect new leadership. That's essentially what they do when they make Jeroboam king. They're electing somebody else to be in charge, somebody who's more responsive to their needs, more responsive to his responsibilities, more responsive to wise counsel. At least he has been to that point. What he does next with the golden calves, rest assured, the same God who rules and reigns and says to Solomon, the kingdom is being taken away from you in your son's days after you have passed on. Also, we'll reckon with Jeroboam and the people of Israel regarding the golden calves. But again, if we think this is only a political situation in our day, relative Roe v. Wade, or if we think it's only a moral issue and politics doesn't enter into it, the scriptures are not informing our understanding of these things sufficiently. We have not studied to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed. We should be ashamed, in other words, because we're not rightly handling the word of truth. We're supposed to be approved workmen and to present ourselves as such. And sometimes, yes, a correction, a rebuke, criticism, but also confrontation, more to the point. However it's phrased, if it's sarcastic, if it's funny, if it's frustrated, if it's very sober, if it's very blunt, it's long and drawn out. If it's met with stubbornness, maybe it's not the medium and maybe it's not the message. Maybe it's just the very same thing that brought the conflict in the first place was the deviation from what is true and what is good brought on by the person who was supposed to be in this position of authority. They were supposed to be faithful in their position of authority and they weren't. They compromised when they were supposed to be resolute and they were supposed to stand firm. They threw in the towel. They flattered those who did what was evil and preferred instead to penalize those who were doing what was good. And all the while, when there's division, when the division manifests itself in being confronted about it, if the response is, well, you're being divisive. Whoa, ho, 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 wait, wait a second. You may have a position of authority, but you don't have that much authority that you can just rewrite the timeline here. You introduced the conflict. If you started saying untrue things. You started flattering the wicked. You introduced the conflict. If you started rewarding those who do what is evil and punishing those who do what is good. And you should not be surprised. If an effect, if a result is that you have less authority now than you did 
There are fewer people who are under your authority now than there were or would have been. If you want to be upset with somebody, look in the mirror. (laughs) If this is going to be really bad for everybody, that there's this division now and that it persists, it exists, but it also persists, be upset with yourself. It's not God's fault, and it's not the fault of the people who've been faithful. At the last here, though, we turn our attention to the featured article, which I have been saving for months now, and now is finally a good time to share it with you and to discuss it. I was waiting and waiting and waiting for the right passage or the right assortment of other news stories to talk about alongside it and to build up to it. But here we have Stephen Peter's piece from August 31st of this year at American Reformer titled, Must Protestants Be Liberals? The Protestant Roots of Christian Nationalism. That's the first heading. Mr. Peter writes, One of the most pernicious myths of Protestantism is that it's responsible for creating the liberal secular state. This myth is a common narrative for Roman Catholics who argue our current modern decay stemmed from Luther's doctrine of sola scriptura and rejections of the Roman Catholic's authority over the temporal. Brad Gregory, in The Unintended Reformation, writes, quote, The drastic transformation of the discourse of natural, universal, subjective rights, first used against the Roman Church by magisterial Protestants, accompanied a rejection of the idea that a ruler's foremost duty was to promote a moral community and a substantive common good, end quote. For Gregory, the fragmentation of interpretations caused by sola scriptura led to the creation of a secular state at a state content with merely creating the conditions for people to choose for themselves the good as they see it. The narrative, which is common in Roman Catholic genealogies of secularism, goes like this. Sola Scriptura gave everyone the freedom to interpret Scripture, which inevitably leads to incontrovertible differences among people. Since these differences can't be reconciled by a principal authority like the Roman Catholic Church, the solution to navigating these differences is either violence or allowing everyone to have their own individual interpretations of Scripture. Thus, states no longer had the goal of pursuing the whole good of its citizens since the highest good religion was subject to disagreement. So Brad Gregory writes, quote, The sanction of an individual right to freedom of religion signaled the renunciation of this aspiration, at least in principle. No more would or could, it seemed, rulers persist in the long-standing Platonic, Aristotelian, and Christian conviction that politics and ethics formed an integral whole, end quote. The culmination of this development for Gregory is the First Amendment. Quote, It was the deliberate separation of church and state in the United States that helped eventually to ensure a much wider protection of individuals from political coercion in ways that relied on both teachings about nature as God's creation and about human beings as created in God's image. End quote. In other words, Protestantism's destruction of the teaching authority of the magisterium, coupled with its belief in the dignity of every human being, invariably and inevitably leads to a voluntarist moral ethic. While many Roman Catholics cast this narrative as a stain upon Protestantism, some evangelicals uphold this narrative as the crowning achievement of historic Protestant political thought. Paul Miller, in The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism, defends this vision for a liberal state on Christian theological grounds. Quote, Political liberty begins with the belief that human beings possess inherent dignity and moral worth. Crucially, 
our moral worth resides in our essential humanity, which we share equally with everyone else. God has commissioned all of us equally as his image bearers, stewards of creation. No one of us is inherently superior by virtue of birth, lineage, rank, wealth, ethnicity, religion, intelligence, sex, or any other attribute to merit special treatment by the government or special access to power. If none of us merits political power because of some innate trait, we all deserve an equal say in how we are governed. End quote. In other words, Miller takes the pejorative narrative set forward by Catholics to ground religious liberty and the liberal state in Protestantism itself. Hence, Miller and the like often reject Protestant attempts to offer an historically informed corrective to the Catholic smears that Miller embraces. Christian nationalism, one such attempt, is criticized by Miller because it apparently betrays Protestantism's supposed principle of religious liberty for a political configuration of church and state that resembles Roman Catholic integralism. For Baptists and Roman Catholics alike, the liberal state is the hallmark of Protestant political thought. A Protestant, so the Roman Catholic and Baptist argue, must promote a liberal state which leaves the state disengaged from religious matters to be truly faithful. However, this argument runs counter to the magisterial reformer's own vision for church and society. Calvin and Busser promoted the magistrate's duty to lead their citizens to virtue, including their final good in Christ, a position that violates Miller's and Gregory's political requirements for Protestantism. But these examples, some have claimed, are instances of the reformers deriving their political configuration from Plato's laws or Aristotle's politics rather than the Bible. Here I want to commend to the Catholic integralist, Christian pluralist, and Christian nationalist, not another theoretical work by a magisterial reformer, but one of the key treatises of the Reformation itself, Luther's Address to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. This treatise is Luther's first appeal to secular authorities for assistance in the reform of the church. More than two years after the 95 Theses, Luther became convinced nothing could be expected from Rome except opposition. Luther wrote this treatise to Emperor Charles and the German nobility, exhorting them to take extraordinary action to reform the corrupt Catholic Church. While he notes the extraordinary circumstances of his request, the theological nature of his argumentation flows from principles that lie at the heart of the Reformation. Consequently, Luther's appeal contains in embryonic form a vision for Christian nationalism, Specifically, the magistrate must uphold and promote true religion within his own realm. Consequently, far from promoting a liberal, secular state, Protestantism, from its earliest sources, promoted a national theory of international order that commits each ruler to promote true religion. Luther begins his treatise by dismantling the three walls that uphold the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church, clearing the field for the execution of Luther's reforms. The first wall he challenges is the mutual exclusivity between the spiritual and secular estate and the supposed superiority of the spiritual estate over the secular. Luther undermines this wall by putting forward the common priesthood of all believers. It is not as if the Pope, bishops, and priests belong to the spiritual estate while kings, artists, and farmers belong to the secular state. Rather, all Christians belong to the spiritual estate. Quote, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office, end quote. In the spiritual estate, all believers, including bishops and the Pope, are equal. Luther cites 1 Peter 2.9, quote, You are a royal priesthood and a priestly realm, 
end quote, and Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Quote, thou hast made us to be priests and kings by thy blood, end quote, to claim that all Christians are consecrated priests. As a result, the offices of the church are contingent and temporal ones. All Christians are spiritually equal since we have one baptism, one gospel, and one faith. But our roles differ for the sake of building each other up. Hence, quote, a priest in Christendom is nothing else but an office holder, end quote. Likewise, a king is one such office holder. Therefore, the Christian king is also a priest responsible for guarding and strengthening the church. Luther argues, quote, since those who exercise secular authority have the same faith, we must admit they are priests and bishops, and we must regard their office as one which has a proper and useful place in the Christian community, end quote. For Luther, the king has a duty to utilize his authority to assist the church in times of need, as to do otherwise would be akin to one member of the body refusing to help another. Quote, since the temporal power is ordained of God to punish the wicked and protect the good, it should be left free to perform its office in the whole body of Christendom without restriction and without respect to persons, whether it affects Pope, bishops, priests, or anyone else. End quote. The Christian king, tasked to promote the upbuilding of his citizens, requires him to use his powers to prevent spiritual harm to his subjects, even if it comes from the church. Positively, the king's powers can be used to empower and build the church by setting up laws, customs, and schools beneficial to the flourishing of the church. The force and reasoning of this first wall form the basis of the execution of the Reformation project itself. The temporal church, besieged with internal errors, calls upon the magistrate to restore her for the sake of his piety and the piety of his citizens. The priesthood of all believers allows Luther to distinguish between the temporal and spiritual estates to enable the temporal to empower the spiritual. Luther likens the relation between the temporal and spiritual estates to how temporal craftsmen provide priests and monks with shoes, clothes, meat, and drink, allowing them to conduct their spiritual work. Likewise, as a member of the spiritual priesthood, the king exercises his temporal authority to embolden the church. This vision, of course, depends on the ability of all believers as priests to hear and understand the word of God. If the king cannot interpret scripture and adhere to correct interpretations, regardless of Rome's errors, then he cannot effectively reform the church. Hence, Luther moves to break this second wall that prevents reformation the Roman magisterium's exclusive claim to interpret scripture. To tear down this wall, Luther cites John 6, 45 and John 16, verses 9 and 20 to demonstrate the believer's ability to understand scripture by virtue of the light of faith. Quote, If God spoke then through an ass against a prophet, why should he not be able, even now, to speak through a righteous man against the Pope? End quote. Believers are called to judge and test what is right. 1 Corinthians 2.15. How could they do that if scripture is unclear for all except the Pope? In fact, Luther says, quote, has the Pope not erred many times? Who would help Christendom when the Pope erred if we did not have somebody we could trust more than him, somebody who had the scriptures on his side, end quote. In fact, if the believers have the same spirit of faith, 2 Corinthians 4.13, should they not be able to perceive what is consistent with faith and what is not? at least as well as an unbelieving pope? Hence, the scriptures, not the pope, are the final authority in matters of faith and life. Sola Scriptura, the norming authority of the scriptures, is always connected to their subsisting clarity 
Consequently, all believers are called to judge what accords with Scripture, even rebuking those in the church if they err greatly. Thus, as a believer, the magistrate can perceive spiritual matters and, moving by his temporal authority, can act to upbuild the church and commonwealth to promote piety. The magistrate's mandate to care for the spiritual state of the commonwealth and the church is enabled by the fact that the king is also a part of the spiritual estate baptized in Christ and able to perceive fundamental spiritual matters. To be sure, the magistrate is not expected to be a theologian, but he is to have the same spirit that indwells all believers, which causes them to submit to the word and moves them to act for the common good of the church. The magistrate is not agnostic toward spiritual manners, but rightly submitting to the word of God can discern his duty to lead his citizens to love God and neighbor. For Luther, the final leg of his appeal is to exhort the king to call together a council to reprove the church. Hence, he tackles the third wall, the Pope's exclusive claim to call a council. Luther argues that it is the duty of a believer, when necessary, insofar as he is able to, to call about a free council. He notes that in Acts 15, the apostles and elders, not St. Peter, called the apostolic council. Likewise, he also notes that, quote, the council of Nicaea, the most famous of all councils, was neither called nor confirmed by the bishop of Rome, but by the emperor Constantine, end quote. If the Pope had the exclusive right to convene these councils, then both of these councils would have been heretical. Further, in a time of severe error, a Christian not attempting to convene a council would be tantamount to him not acting to stop a fire because he lacks the authority of a mayor. Quote, in such a situation, is it not the duty of every citizen to arouse and summon the rest? How much more should this be done in the spiritual city of Christ? End quote. For Luther, the Christian best fit to deal with this fire is the magistrate responsible for ruling over the realm. Implicit in Luther's exhortation is a key claim of nationalism, the freedom of the sovereign to determine the laws in his realm. Before the Reformation, the European international order was an imperial one, one king over all the earth and one pope over all the earth, Luther's arguments culminating in the practical exhortation to have the king convene a council do away with this imperialism in place for a nationalist project that allows independent nations to determine the best practice of true religion. Nationalism here emerges as a rejection of Roman Catholic imperialism and an outworking of the priesthood of believers to interpret and apply God's word in their own lands. Luther rejects papal supremacy for an international order of sovereigns seeking to promote right worship for their own peoples. Luther's treatise, which is the theological basis for the Reformation project, far from entailing a secular state, lays out the theological basis for Christian nationalism. The narratives of Brad Gregory and Paul Miller paint Protestantism as a project of blurring the ultimate good so as to make the state concerned with allowing each citizen to reach his own good. However, a close reading of Luther's treatise shows the Reformation as a project of diversifying the single imperial order to several sovereign orders, all normed by the word of God. Consequently, Miller's vision implicitly denies scripture's clarity about the most basic claims of reality and the magistrate's duty as a Christian to acknowledge those claims in his ordering of the realm to conform with God's law. In short, if Luther conformed to Miller's vision for church and state, there would be no reformation at all. Conversely, Miller and those sympathetic to him should view in Christian nationalism a political theory rooted fundamentally in Protestantism itself. 
The liberalism that Protestantism puts forward is not agnosticism toward the good, but the freedom, libertas, and responsibility for every realm to determine the most prudent way to punish evil and promote the good. The laws of flourishing do not change. Protestantism acknowledges that these laws are clearly revealed in Scripture and emboldens us as members of the same spiritual priesthood and magistrates of lesser and greater statuses to institute them prudently in each of our domains, so that in all things, whether we eat, drink, and yes, rule, it is all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Stephen Peter is an MA student at Reformed Theological Seminary, NYC. Previously, he graduated from the University of Chicago with a double major in economics and religious studies. He currently lives in NYC. Now, I don't have a lot to add, particularly for the sake of time, but there we have read the full of the article at American Reformer, Must Protestants Be Liberals? Allow me to suggest to you that Stephen Peter is quite right. If you see a hole in his logic, let me know. But I read this and I see quite a lot of merit. The Roman Catholics, they have their axe to grind, but it's an excellent point that actually, instead of seeing Christian nationalism as this repressive and constricting and, yes, even tyrannical force for constraining your liberty. You should see Christian nationalism as it originally came about in the Protestant Reformation over and against Roman imperialism. Each nation, each people having the right to self-determination, the rulers over individual nations and peoples having the responsibility to, as Paul writes in Romans 13, reward those who do what is good, punish those who do what is evil. If you view authority as a bad thing, then you might want to have as few authorities as possible. And let's concentrate more and more and more power in fewer and fewer hands until we get to one guy who is a law unto himself. That is totally at odds with scripture, and it's totally at odds with Protestant political theology for the last five centuries. The people play a role. The king plays a role. The clergy absolutely do pay attention to these things and play a role. But the object is honoring God, promoting what is good. And you might say, abiding by what God says is good, rewarding those who do what is good, protecting their right to do what is good from those who would abuse them, those who would molest them, those who would tear them down. Just as the church has diverse members who are given diverse gifts so that there's mutual dependence, so also nations have diverse attributes. Sure, there's geography, but there's also culture. There's also language. There's also climate. There's also natural resources. And maybe the way we've been thinking about Christian nationalism over and against globalism is all wrong because we've been told that globalism will promote equity. Is it? Has it been? Who's pushing for globalism? Where do they get their standard of good and evil and therefore their standard of justice? Is it not social justice that they're pursuing? Is it not actually 
the disillusion of any distinction between the Christian religion and all the other religions of the world so that we have world peace? Is it not just a variation on the old Roman Catholic imperialism? And before that, before Christianity overtook Rome, old pagan Roman imperialism. Globalism is the new colonialism. And actually Christian nationalism, in that case, where it's not particular only to America, but it's something of a universal truth claim that this is who God is. And how do we know that this is who God is in reference to America? Because this is who God was in reference to the people of Israel and the other nations surrounding Israel, that there would be boundaries for nations, that there would be authorities particular to nations, that God would raise them up and he would also bring them low. He would make people who were no people to be his people. And he would also bring to nothing peoples who were very great and wealthy and powerful, but also arrogant and idolatrous and wicked. If Christian nationalism, after a fashion, is true with regards to the United States of America, then it has to be true with regards to all nations. But then wouldn't that actually be the most freeing thing, the most prosperous thing? If you said, regardless of how great and powerful your nation is, or how small and weak or dependent or vulnerable, your nation has the right to self-determination. And we stand for that in your nation and you making the decisions with regards to your nation because that's universally true. It's objectively true. And isn't that a way of pushing back against the new imperialism that says all of the world's wealth, all of the world's economic activity and cultural conversation and religious conviction has to be subordinated for the purpose of protecting us from climate change or promoting social justice or championing diversity, equity, and inclusivity? How about a diversity of nations where each nation is accountable to God and reaps the blessings of heaven when they do what is good? They reward their people when they do what is good. They protect their people from those who do what is evil. They punish those who do what is evil. And they're blessed by God accordingly. Isn't that the most freeing thing? If so, well, then that's a very opposite way to look at Christian nationalism than the likes of Rob Reiner and the mainstream neoconservative Republicans and American evangelicals have told us. They've told us that Christian nationalism is a bogeyman, but maybe it's actually really just that they've benefited very much for all the same reasons that they have the microphone, they have the op-ed, they have this position of authority in this or that institution or academy or denomination because they were seen as non-threatening to the status quo. The big donors weren't going to stop donating. In fact, they might donate even more for all the same reasons that they have benefited from the status quo being what it is right now. They're loath to see the status quo give way to an older paradigm, the former social imaginary. If that's what it is, and that's driving the desire, the efforts, the statements so critical of Christian nationalism from the status quo types, from the establishment types, we should know it. It makes a great deal of difference whether we will have a good conscience and a good outcome and good effects because upstream, like I've been saying this entire episode, upstream of our practical effects, our practical outcomes is 
what is our theology? Is our theology the kind that will make golden calves to keep our people from going and worshiping Yahweh in the temple because Solomon built that temple and Rehoboam is king in Judah? If so, we'll find out in our next episode and the one after that what we can expect, what is likely to be our outcome, what are likely to be our practical effects. But that is all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.